This morning I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. It's a passage that you perhaps are familiar with, a passage regarding the death of Lazarus, Jesus' interaction with Mary and Martha and the people of Bethany. And um, before we read that passage, John chapter 11, we're going to read verses 1 through 44, a pretty lengthy passage. Let us sit under the word in just a few moments. But before we do, I, I knew just a few weeks into this pandemic that uh, just a few weeks really into our inability to gather together that when we first gather again, the, our first business needs to be to lament together, to spend a time considering the difficulty, the suffering, and loss that has taken place in all of our lives in recent weeks and months. But I also knew, especially as the day grew closer and closer, that we needed also to celebrate. We need to truly give thanks from the deepest parts of our souls that the Lord has continued to preserve us, that he continues to strengthen us, that in his kindness he has even begun to make a way for us, at least some of us here, to gather. I have to be honest, I've never been so thankful during the course of these few months for the gift that the Lord has made us a people together. And to remember that we are a people together, not because we have a location that we meet at, not because of any labor that is made by any one individual or group of people, or even by our own will or decision. We are a people together because of Christ. And friends, that is is non-negotiable. This is what is true, and it has been true in recent months, and it is true today. What a gift to be God's people. Now, we're going to spend some time reading John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. I hope that you'll follow along as much as you can with me as we consider this passage together. John chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. When Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, are you not... Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking rest and sleep. Now Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. 
And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard the news that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she, she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he have opened... He who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this account, this orchestration of events that you have gone about in history, orchestrating it all the way to the recording of these events, all for the purpose that we would believe. Thank you, Lord. We pray that that work would work among us this morning by your continued orchestration, that your spirit would give us the gift of faith to believe in the resurrection and the life this morning. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. As we look at this passage, there are four things that I want us to see that, that I believe give us perspective as we move into this next season, the season of our life together at Cross Point Coast. The first thing that I want us to see is the reality of lament. One thing that is thoroughgoingly true throughout the whole of this passage is the fact that suffering is real. Suffering is in the passage. Look at verse 2. Lazarus was ill. He whom you love is ill. Verse 11. Jesus says Lazarus is, quote, asleep. I'm not sure why he used the word asleep. I mean, clearly it's a a bit of a euphemism that is prevalent in the day. I don't know if he was softening the blow to his disciples that he was dead, but he was communicating exactly in that moment. Heard a lot of euphemisms in recent weeks and months, but he's clearly indicating that there's something not quite right, so that in the end, in verse 14, he has to say very clearly, Lazarus has died. Death runs as death and suffering runs as a thread throughout the whole of this passage and really as a thread throughout the whole of the gospel accounts. What I want us to do is consider the disciples first and their relationship to Jesus and lament. In verse 11, it says this, After these things he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to wake him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. But Jesus had been speaking of his death. Jesus' ways are so different from our own. Is he asleep or is he dead? What's going on, Jesus? Why are we still here if your friend is sick? If you love him. Then verses 15 and 16. In the second half of verse 15, it says, But let us go to him. I'm sorry, verse 14. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad, and I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas responds, called the twin, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now surely they all felt the loss, they felt the loss of the reality of the death of their friend, but they also felt the pressure of the situation. You see, there's more going on in this passage than simply the death of Lazarus. This is not a simple account of Jesus' friend who died, Jesus wept, Jesus rose him from the dead. This is in the context of the passion account. This is actually in the context of the death of Jesus who set his face to Jerusalem. He is going there, and he's going there to make sacrifice for sinners like Lazarus and you and I. He set his face there. And the disciples know that if Jesus goes to Jerusalem, Jesus is going to get killed. And they know if they go with him, they run a severe risk of dying. If they go anywhere near Jerusalem, they're all going to die. These disciples follow Jesus through suffering and sadness, always in the face of an impending cross. It's it's a mark that runs throughout Jesus' ministry, there's always a looming cross not far off in the distance. And here, Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas, right? He's the one who sees it, and it's coming. Now, Thomas's words are interesting. 
said to his fellow disciples, let us all go that we may die with him. I don't know if there's a hint of sarcasm, perhaps a bit of cynicism in his words, but I'll tell you one thing, there is a note of realism. He's being realistic. If they go there, there will be suffering that meets them, that goes beyond even the death of their friend Lazarus. There's an impending cross that awaits them all. But the thing is that this is true of us as well. We too are called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. It's what it looks like to follow Jesus where he is going. We too are called to make sense of the presence of Jesus, what it is to draw near to him and have him near to us, and the presence of suffering and circumstances that often leave us dazed and confused. This is what it means to be a disciple, to navigate the reality of the presence of Jesus and the presence of suffering. Though we follow him as a people who have not only seen the cross, you and I have seen resurrection. Now, it's interesting. That's true of Thomas, too. You see, perhaps we shouldn't call him doubting Thomas. Perhaps we should call him believing Thomas because he walked through this passage with Jesus so that he would believe. And after... Jesus' resurrection, Thomas is invited to reach out and touch the wounds in his hands and in his sight, and Thomas believed. Friends, that is what it looks like to be one who experiences suffering on the other side of resurrection. Now, there are two others in the passage that we see. We see Jesus and Martha. They both say the same thing. Verse 21, Lord, says to Martha, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, this is uh, seems to me not as much a confession of the power of Jesus to heal, and, and perhaps not even an accusation of Jesus for his absence. It seems to me that it is, is more just a simple statement of grief. My brother's gone. He just got here. I, what's going on, Jesus? What Jesus does is he gives the reality of Martha's grief a context, a context of resurrection. Look at the way that it's stated. In verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would would not have died. But even now, I know, whatever you ask, God will give that to you. Jesus' words, your brother will rise again. I know, I know, in the last day, right? Jesus gives her then this. Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Jesus lifts Martha in the context of her lament and places her lament in the context of resurrection. This happens over and over in Scripture. One of my favorite places of lament is Psalm 31.11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You know, they're both movement. They're both a deep expression. And this is what the Lord does. He turns for us our mourning into dancing. Or Lamentations, I think perhaps says it even more clearly, Lamentations, at the end of the chapter, in, verse, in chapter 3, beginning at verse 19, it says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. As, I don't even know what those are, <laughs> but it sounds horrible. It sounds like deep 
suffering, bitterness, vile. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. The context is lament. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What does he call to mind? Great is your faithfulness. To every morning, your mercies new every morning. Here's what happens. He remembers the affliction. He remembers the wandering. He remembers that his soul is bowed down and calls to mind, takes that reality of suffering and situates it within the context of the mercy of the Lord. This is what Jesus does for Mary as well. In verse 33, Mary says the same thing. Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came weeping. She had already confessed that the brother would not have died. Jesus responds in this way. He was deeply moved in his spirit, greatly troubled. Where have you laid them, he said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. You see, Jesus has already told us about the sickness and death of Lazarus, and he's taken Martha and now Mary and situated them both in the context of what he is going to do, which is work resurrection. But the thing is, what he's already told Martha is it's not just what he does, it's who he is. I am the resurrection and the life. What Jesus is doing is taking the reality of our suffering and our lament, our grief and our sorrow, and situating it in the context of his own presence. What I think we need to do is we need to take a second, and we need to remember, we need to lament for a few moments together. We need to do what the author of Lamentations also does. We need to remember the affliction and the wanderings. This has been a hard, hard set of weeks and months. Life has been very complicated. Normal life decisions, routines, habits have had to be rethought nearly every second of the day. I can honestly say I have complete decision fatigue. You see, I've got like 30 decisions in me a day. That's why I wear black, is just to eliminate one of them. Like what color goes with blue jeans, you know? Um, Just blue jeans and a black shirt, and that's one. And in a pandemic, I have to ask, do I put my mask over the mic? Or do I wait and try and remember to put the mic on? And do we have people sign up per row? And do I have a graduation party for my son? Or do we just do it? Do you know what I mean? Do I even go to the store today? Do I? (laughs) Decision. Moment by moment. It's exhausting. Are you exhausted? I'm tired. I'm tired of deciding what is safe, what is wise, what's normal, and what needs to change. And then it being a whole different story like the next day. We know people who have lost income and opportunities. Some have been laid off, hours cut back, pay decreases. We know that there has been real suffering in the midst of our community and congregation. We know that birthday parties have gone uncelebrated. And it strikes me. Why in the world are we talking about birthday parties in a time so serious as this? You know why? While there is such a variety of suffering that still hurts. If it's your birthday, if it's your kid 
who doesn't get to have all their friends over and celebrate together. You know, it feels like suffering. It feels like something that is worth taking a moment and saying, Lord, it seems silly, but I lament Jesus. My oldest son graduated this year. We planned a trip to Madrid. We were going to do our like last little hurrah with my 18-year-old, you know? Just the two days before all the trips are canceled to Europe. We don't, we don't go. I feel silly even lamenting it. So I know I don't have a right to be there. I was shocked that we were even doing this crazy thing, flying to another continent to celebrate with our son. I don't deserve that. But it felt like loss. You know what I mean. You know what you have experienced. You know what people around you have experienced. And yet we can also be thankful. Some of the most dire and catastrophic predictions have not taken place. Thank you, Jesus. We can rejoice, but we can't forget to lament. Sometimes I think one of the greatest problems we have in our culture is the inability to look at what is hard and say, that's hard. We just have to like, it's okay. It's going to be okay. Celebrate that it wasn't worse. It's hard. Look at it for what it is. Brothers and sisters, the numbers can be lower than expected. But when one of those numbers is your mother, as was the case with one of the Crosspoint lead pastors or a grandparent, as is the case with many others, there's little comfort in statistics. And we have to be allowed to sit there. And we have to, if we're paying attention to the walk of Jesus and the instruction that's given to us in the epistles, we get to sit down and mourn there. We would do well to do that today. My own father entered a hospital just a few days after COVID. Thankfully, he was there not due to COVID, but he did have pneumonia related to a heart condition. While he was in the hospital, his health deteriorated in many ways, but more importantly, his mental health deteriorated. And over the course of two weeks, not seeing anyone that he knew, he was finally diagnosed with dementia. We knew it was coming, but in isolation in a hospital, it's bound to get worse. And then he was moved to a nursing home into their, their mental care section. <laughs> Still hasn't seen anybody when he was moved over there. And how is he supposed to be oriented? I finally got to see him just last week, and he didn't recognize me. That was my week. We've all had weeks. Perhaps it's a birthday party. Perhaps it's a dad. Perhaps it's a mother. Perhaps it's just tired of being afraid and you feel like it's for no reason because you can't see it. Right? Perhaps it's confusion or real suffering and heartache over many of the things that have happened in recent weeks around our own nation. We should situate ourselves in a place of lament. You know, really, I think one of the greatest losses at Cross Point Coast is the loss of time together. Haven't you felt the loss of time together? There's no replacement for the gathering of saints. Not only can we respond together to the call to worship, but we can continue the conversation in the hallway. One of the things that Joyce pointed out is some of the things that have been the most difficult trials for us and perhaps even disagreements have only been exacerbated as we haven't been able to gather in hallways before and after our celebration services to talk over those things. 
to put a hand on a shoulder and say, can I pray for you? I'm not sure what to say, but can we pray together? That when we're on a Zoom call, we have this great conversation, and at the end, instead of hanging out and maybe enjoying a coffee afterward, we just click end meeting, and we're alone in a room again. There's been a real loss of time together. What I want to do is I want to remember what is true in this. When Jesus saw disciples, two sisters, and himself in a position of suffering and loss, even though he knew what was about to happen, he knows he's going to raise this guy from the dead. He wept, friends. We should do. And we should hear him deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. I would ask us to spend even a moment right now, just I'm going to leave a moment of silence, to pray, to lament before our God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we don't have time this morning to lament all that comes to mind. There's real loss, and we would do well to count them, to call, to to remember the the bitterness and the gall. Our souls are bowed down within us. But Lord, we say whatever needs to be said, just like Mary and Martha, they say the same thing, but they do it in such different ways. Lord, if you'd been here, perhaps it wouldn't have gone so sideways, and we're wondering, Lord, what are you doing Teach us how to lament. Teach us how to cry. Teach us how to see the suffering that is. Thank you, Lord. I pray that in the next few moments we would see and experience what it is to situate that lament in the context of resurrection and hope. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to spend just a few more moments together. We're going to walk very quickly through three observations. The first observation is two sisters. I want to do this one very quickly. To be honest, I think we could spend a good bit of time together, but I love Mary and Martha. They're characters that show up a number of times in the gospel accounts. Over in Luke chapter 10, we have this context of Martha running around being distracted and very busy, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And, And Jesus offers this kind rebuke. He says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. What a kindness to even say to her. I see it. I see what's going on. It's okay. I see it. But one thing is necessary, he says. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. We see them also in John 11. That same sort of dynamic continues. The interaction between Jesus and Martha is a very straightforward interaction. But listen, it's no less deep and sincere. It is to Martha That Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And it's Martha in deep sincerity that says, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Mary barely says any words. She's so busy crying at the feet of Jesus. Friends, it's okay to look at these characters in the scriptures and see that they react very differently to the presence of Jesus, but Jesus relates with them so well. And that same sort of dynamic continues today. The interaction between Jesus and Martha is straightforward, and the interaction between Mary and Jesus is her at his feet again. 
But both are making a confession. One is in the context of a deep and profound conversation, and the other is in the context of tears. This passage is a gift to us. It's a beautiful glimpse of what it means to be human, that we're complex, we're each very unique, and Jesus meets us right where we are with conversation and revelation and tears and love and compassion. Let's not be surprised to find a beautiful and complex diversity among the people of Cross Point Coast. I think it would be a mistake to say we've got some Marys here and we've got some Marthas here. But it would not be a mistake to say that we have different people here. Let's not be surprised to find that Jesus looks all of our complexities, our oddities, our personalities, our tendencies and anxieties in the eye. And here's what he does. He brings grace and truth. What a gift that in the context of a person like Martha, Jesus tells us all, I am the resurrection and the life. In the context of a person like Mary, that Jesus shows that he is deeply moved. Church, there is a, a profound implication in this for us today. We need one another. We need Marys to be bowed down, weeping, staying at home, unsure of how they would react if they saw Jesus. So they send Martha on ahead so that Mary on her knees can overhear Jesus tell Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Mary, you need Martha. And Martha needs to see Jesus deeply moved with Mary. We must be patient with one another, even as we react differently in different circumstances. This shouldn't surprise us. We don't have the good one sister and the bad sister in this passage. We have two people. And we have many people at Cross Point Coast. Perhaps at times we need a gentle rebuke. Perhaps at times we need a soft kindness. But may Jesus at all times find us together and not divided so that he may show the whole of the church the fullness of who he is. Do you hear that? You need one another because there's something that you're going to see between the interaction of your brother or sister and Jesus that you won't see in your interaction with Jesus. I don't have to go any further as an example than watching different people pray. And I hear a relationship in the prayers of the diversity that is Cross Point Coast, and Lord willing, increasingly so, that I, I see who Jesus is in the fullness of who he actually is. We do well to pay attention to the sisters. The sisters have this great gift. They have the opportunity to see resurrection. This is a simple point, but it's kind of the whole point. Three words, Jesus raises the dead. He simply says, Lazarus, in front of the tomb, he says, Lazarus, come out. With three words, Jesus raises the dead. And John narrates with such profound simplicity, he simply says, the man who had died came out. This is Jesus. He's the resurrection and the life. Why would we or Mary or Martha even be surprised that Jesus would say it and Lazarus would do it? A dead man obeying the voice of Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised, but we must be amazed. That's 
the resurrection. That's the life. This is why we lament. But in the context of resurrection, as he takes our lament and places it in the context of his hope, we also celebrate. We, a people of lament, by faith, remember the hope that we have in Christ and become a people of celebration. Now, what we need to do, and this is is worth just a few moments together, we need to consider how the resurrection works. Jesus and the curse. Let us remember that sickness, listen, sickness, like Lazarus's sickness, and death are at the heart of the curse of God upon sin. Let us also remember that the curse, sickness and death, is the righteous response of a just God against rebellion, against his good rule in his good kingdom. I'll say it more clearly. The curse is right. It's not a mistake that God has forever been trying to fix. The curse is the righteous judgment of God. Jesus isn't sliding in and saying, oh man, this death thing, it's got to go. I don't know about this curse anyway. Let's just move it aside and fix it by just making it like it didn't even happen. And so what is Jesus doing? He's offering a profound message in this passage in his weeping and his healing. His weeping reveals a deep, on a deeply emotional level that the Lord's longing is for not only righteousness, law, and justice, but also peace. Sickness and death are a constant reminder to us that strikes an emotional chord that we are not at peace. That's why we spent an extended time remembering the lament. This world is not at peace. Not all is well. Sickness and death are a constant reminder of the reality of sin and brokenness in the world. So when Jesus heals the sick person or raises the dead, he's not just setting the curse aside, saying that was a mistake. No. He's reversing the curse. Let that sink in. Because the curse is God's righteous response to sin. So let us realize that he doesn't just push the curse aside. When he tells Lazarus, who deserves death, as do we all, to rise up and walk out, he's saying, Lazarus, I will die that death for you. And when he heals of sickness, that is the just punishment for sin, he says, I will take that sickness for you. The curse that is due to you, let that be on me. Friends, that's why he went to Jerusalem. Do you get it? He went to Jerusalem not to heal Lazarus. He went to Jerusalem that we would believe that he is the curse bearer. How can Lazarus rise? How can the lame bind their wounds? How can the suffering be comforted? Because Jesus doesn't just raise the dead. He takes their death upon himself. So if we who lament and long for comfort, what we are longing is we are longing for the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now let's situate this in the context of reality. Let us be like Thomas for a second. Let us be realists. Back as we consider the idea of dying again, 
Back in verse 14, Jesus said simply, Lazarus has died. It's true. He was telling the truth. Lazarus was actually dead. He wasn't just sleeping. And when Jesus said with a loud voice, Lazarus woke up. But then, by the word of the Lord, we are told Lazarus was alive. So which is it? Well, he lived happily ever after, right? No. We aren't told when or where, but eventually Lazarus died. Like, again. You see, all humans, apart from Jesus, have just three scenarios. you got Enoch and Elijah, who were taken by God, and they never died. Then you have Lazarus and the small list of others who were raised, and then died twice. And then you have the rest of us, prior to the return of Jesus, who will die once. And as I look at that list, it seems that Elijah and Enoch have a pretty good deal. I wouldn't mind that one. I'll opt for option one, please. Right? But I'm not sure that Lazarus actually has it better than you or I. He has to suffer death twice. This is such an important reality for us in the present age. Jesus' comfort for the sister, his love for Lazarus, are not true and enduring healing. They are but shadows. A shadow of his perfect and complete work in the cross and in his own resurrection. Until we see that, until that work is accomplished and it is finished, that is where we discover the true lifting of the curse. This means two things. The resurrection of Lazarus is only a sign of glory. Verse 4 says, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. What is Jesus doing in this death and resurrection? He's offering a sign of his own work. That the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Verse 14, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. The whole episode of suffering and lament is for our instruction. Here's the grace of the reality of the resurrection. The curse loses its curseness. It loses its judgment. It loses its condemnation as that is placed on Christ instead. So the curse becomes an instructor and a tutor for us. And we find ourselves in our lament drawn to final resurrection. Healing and comfort we find in this world are not final. I'm looking at much of the language being used in our nation and world today, and it has sort of an old utopian flavor to it. Lazarus, on his second deathbed, would be the first to tell you that if you're looking for peace in this world, you will not find it. Even if you are raised from the dead, you're still going to die. Something tells me that when he was close to death on a second time, he called his sister together and said, I'm going to ask you just this once, no more resurrections this time. You see, peace, resurrection, comfort in this world are at best temporary. And yet they're a sign. They're a sign of a kingdom that is to come that has been purchased by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we long And we labor for peace and rest and healing and comfort. Even as we proclaim with the author of Hebrews, here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. 
And that leads us to the second implication. The resurrection of Jesus is our glorious hope, our singular one thing that is necessary. You see, you heard it right. We seek a city that is to come. It is coming. And when it comes, our presence in that city has been purchased by the death and resurrection of Jesus. The question is this. Do you believe? Do you believe today in the context of lament? Do you cling to the resurrection of Jesus? What is your hope? For this city that will pass away? Or for the city that is to come? Heavenly Father, we confess a hope in you. Our confession sounds so much like the words of Martha at the beginning of her confession. May you, because we've seen the resurrection, we've seen the the forgiveness and grace that is in Christ, may we believe. I pray that that miracle, that truly profound miracle, the miracle of faith would be birthed in us, that you would look at our dead souls with no hope, rotting in decay and sin, that you would speak the word of life into us, that we would believe, be granted the gift of faith, and walk in light of your resurrection. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things in the name of Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Amen. In the next few moments, we have the opportunity to celebrate communion for the first time in months. This is a practice that we go about week after week, but here we are now at this time having the opportunity to celebrate again. We recognize that there are those who are gathered in this room, but there are those who will be joining us via video by this evening. And so we are still dispersed in many ways, and we lament that, but we hope that in these next few moments we can celebrate and remember as much as we can together. I would like to speak mostly to those who are joining us via video at this time, but I encourage all of us to listen in. It must be said that communion is necessarily both within the context of worship and in the context of the gathering of the saints. We believe this continues to be true, and yet here we are in a season unlike any that we have faced at Cross Point Coast before, and we're making every effort to that as many partners in the gospel may also be partakers of communion at Cross Point Coast. So this morning, some in the congregation are able to gather, but others are still excluded due to safety concerns. And so if you intend to partake with us in communion at home, we would ask you to consider just these following things. Please only take partake during one of our live streams or during the video that's posted on Sunday night. We ask that if you happen to be watching the video at some time in the future or later this week that you would refrain. This is an effort on our part to hold the the twofold integrity of communion, taking context in the worship and the gathering, that we would take part on this Lord's Day. Secondly, please prepare the communion elements for your household in advance. Now, I know I just said that about one minute before we're about to distribute them here. If you have to pause for a moment and prepare, we would invite you to, but that's a note for the future. Please use grape juice or wine and bread. We don't want to encourage any irreverence by substituting elements as much as we possibly can. 
And please remember that communion is intended for believers who are walking in repentance. There's something that is in our service week after week. Every week, we, we enter into a time of a prayer of confession. Why is that? Well, because every week we enter into communion. And we need to do so as a people who have seen that the Lord is God and we are not. And have made that essential confession and walked in repentance however we must in order to see the Lord and know that his grace is for the forgiveness of our sin, not our hiding. And so we would ask you, it's important that each person examine their hearts before the Lord. And it's important that parents exercise wisdom, encouraging only children who are believers to take communion. We encourage only those who are baptized to participate, though we do leave that to the discretion of parents. And we apologize for the fact that this is such a distributed, difficult way of going about it. But we also remember that even communion is something we do, not because we found out the perfect way to execute it. The perfect way has already been executed. His body has already been broken. His blood has already been shed. It is our business this morning to remember well. So I'd invite Joel. He's going to distribute the elements. Just maybe put your hand up as he walks by to let him know that you'll be taking. Know this. One of the reasons why typically we have people walk forward on their own is we want you to be under no compulsion to participate really in any part of our gathering. And so feel free to let him know if he needs to simply pass by. We'll take together, and I'll instruct you as we do so in just a few moments together. First Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I would invite you to take just that top layer of plastic and remove it, revealing the bread. And as you do so, I am um, reminded that what we have in our, our hand is bread, a symbol, a representation that what is here is not itself sanctified or holy, but rather what we have is a reminder of the sanctifier what he has done to make his people holy. And for that reason, we don't worship elements. We never have. May the Lord keep us in that practice, never will. But rather, we do participate, not because of this element, but because the Lord is holy and he has made us holy, that we would do so with reverence and awe, choosing our words carefully, choosing our practices carefully that we would worship with reverence and awe. So I invite you, church, that we would remember the body of Christ broken for you.